I'm Kristen Birdwell, and this is Sex, Drugs, and Soul. Hey, y'all. I am here today with Angel of Miss Laura's Social Club and the Visitor Center in Fort Smith, Arkansas. After discovering Miss Laura's and one of the tour guides, Emma, on TikTok, I had some really interesting creativity-stimulating conversations and virtual tours with them. Well, you and Emma and Jack all brought each a different flair and flavor and depth to the tours, and I found them fascinating. I hope that y'all start offering the virtual tours online to people. Um, But welcome to Sex, Drugs, and Soul. So I thought I'd start off by saying, um, asking like who and what is Miss Laura's and maybe like the opening of the, of the story. Yeah. So Miss Laura's is actually, um, a historic brothel that, uh, has been kind of turned into the city's visitor center. Um, that happened back in 1992, I think. And they essentially just kind of had a really crazy vision to utilize this building that had just been vacant, you know? Um, so basically it, um, Miss Laura started construction on this place back in 1898. Um, and it just kind of has just had such a long life. Um, she ended up selling the property in 1911. Um, the lady who owned it then was Bertha. Bertha owned it until she passed away in 1948. Um, she'd willed it to a guy who lived here with her, Jules Bartholomew, and he lived here until he passed away in 1962. Um, and then he, it kind of went downhill from there. So after he passed away, the brother didn't want anything to do with it. Um, and it kind of was up to the city to figure out what to do with it. And so they, basically auctioned everything off and just said, if somebody doesn't buy it, they're going to tear it down. Um, Don Reynolds with Don Ray media actually purchased the property Hmm. and uh, didn't do anything with it for like 20 more years. So it was still just kind of sitting here. I don't know, not, not doing anything really, unfortunately. Um, And so some investors came forward in 1963 um, or I'm sorry, 1983, and they ended up turning it into a restaurant. So that's where the Miss Laura Social Club comes from. Um, and so it was only a restaurant for like five years, and then it went under, and then it sat vacant again, and then that's whenever, of course, the Convention of Visitor Bureau came in and turned it into the Visitor Center. So that's just kind of its um, little bit of its history. So in the, the Convention of Visitor Bureau, we essentially live in this building. This is where our offices are. And so we come and go from this building every day. <laughs> so, um, and now we, of course, do tours of the house. And, um, you know, it's interesting. So, Like a frequent fire <laughs> member of an old brothel. <laughs> no. That's right. So I feel like there's so much mystery surrounding Miss Laura. And to my understanding, y'all have um, wider knowledge of Bertha. Um, there is one thing that I thought that would be cool to kind of like of Miss um, Laura's uh, social club because whenever I was googling it and kind of researching, I came across something that was like the night of the lingerie parade, and I thought it was an interesting story. And of course, it gave me like captivating imagery in my mind um, with you know the, I think the article depicts like women running around in lingerie or something. And I just wanted to offer the space to to share like the truth of the situation of that night. Or day. <laughs> yeah, so that's like one of many, which is kind of crazy. Um, but <clears throat> so the night of the lingerie parade, I think 
there at one point in time there were like 72 volunteers that worked here and so everybody as you, i mean and you've seen with these virtual tours just between three people how different the story mm -hmm. is or not that the story is different but that the way that it's delivered is different and so previously people could just make up whatever they wanted to make up and we have rules in place now but <clears throat> So there was this narrative that, um, you know, this fire started at the end of the row and, and it ravaged the row, burning all of these houses down. And right whenever it got to the steps of Miss Laura's, the wind turned and it saved the house. And, you know, that all of these women went running out into the street and more than just their identities were exposed that day, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so the reality of that is that there were only ever... And, and, you know, often they'll say, like, you know, the newspapers dubbed it the Night of the Lingerie Parade. In fact, there's actually a movie that was created um, called Step Into Miss Laura's, which is not available to the public. Um, it's something that occasionally we would show here. We won't be showing it any longer, but, um, you know, that talks about that as well. And, and the reality is there were three articles that were published about the fire. And... <clears throat> They didn't talk about that at all, actually. The only mention of the row pertained to the two houses that burnt down um, and that one man who was exiting one of the houses, because they waited until the last minute, um, was actually treated for severe burns. Um, so this, the fire itself actually burnt for about 13 and a half hours, and it wow. did start late at night, but initially it was very contained. And so nobody really freaked out. Um, but then it got hotter and hotter and it, essentially this oil tank exploded and it got hot enough that it melted the legs of an adjacent water tower and the water tower fell and that's what spread the fire everywhere. Wow. And so there were lots of curious onlookers, you know, of course, and some of them were hurt by like, you know, the falling embers and stuff like that. But, um, I like to just say, you know, when we're training some of our new people, because we actually got some new volunteers, which is great, oh, cool. um, is that let's just say for a second that this did happen. Um, the reality is there was an eight foot fence between town and the row. And so even if that was the case, nobody would have seen what was going on down here. If mm -hmm. people really did run out of the house, no one would have known. Mm -hmm. And so... That's one of those things. <laughs> Even if the newspaper saw or whatever, you know, that somebody knew that the fire was happening, the only it's people that would have known would have been people on this side of the fence. So, yeah. There's, that. there's a couple of things that, that come up for me when you like expand on that is like the power of like the of words and how we like write our history and like how if the words aren't true, how that can shift the perspective of society or the narrative and all that. So I could just like commend you for like wanting to tell and spread the truth of the matter, even if it isn't as like, it doesn't have as much flair, right? Put that in a fiction novel. I've been calling it this week, like the vaudeville theatrics, you know, of <laughs> yeah, yeah. To be such a big, you know, exciting mm -hmm. thing. And it is, I mean, it is exciting. The real history is exciting. It is. And um, y'all even have a photo that I remember from one of the tours that was really interesting of some of the ladies like sitting on a train, like in maybe a fur or something um, covered up. <laughs> and because I guess they were not allowed to go 
out beyond the fence or to be seen. So like even that speaks to like the even more of like the debunking the myth, I believe. Yeah. Yep. They, and you know, the railway cars would have been on this side of the fence, so it wouldn't have been like, they wouldn't have been in town. And you know, they're, they're actually in one of the photos downstairs, there is a woman that's hiding because she is on the other side of the fence, but they know they're not supposed to be out there. So, um, yeah, they, they, they know. (laughs) Yeah. I'm Mm -hmm. sure they get railroaded or were getting railroaded quite frequently, you know, and there were lots of ordinances and things in place. So. Yeah, I can only imagine the shame that they may have felt. And like my heart goes out to them in that aspect, because um, relating from it and from a personal standpoint. Um, but I wanted to speak on identity a little bit. Um, and I wanted to, I'd love if you make a note or expand on the women's options for employment then. Because um, like if you're coming yeah. or wanting to escape a hard situation or make yeah. a good life. Yeah, so... <laughs> Right. Um, so the reality is um, options that are available for occupation. I mean, so most at the turn of the century, so I'm typically I'm talking about those late 1800s, early 1900s. There's not a lot available to just women in general. Um, but if you didn't come from money, you really are limited. There's not any amount of schooling that you can obtain most of the women that came into this profession were illiterate. Um, and so that was another big deal. Um, a lot of them had to be taught some of these things. So now when I talk sometimes, I'm not necessarily just talking about Miss Laura's, uh, because we've had to do so much research into sort of these adjacent communities, um, you know, like St. Louis and I say adjacent, but we've really got kind of a triangle of things that we see. So New Orleans, big districts, um, St. Louis, big districts. And then you've got, um, this lady over in Bowling Green, Kentucky. So, um, we know a lot from I just them. read her book. <laughs> <laughs> there's a couple of them that are what I find there's like the books by the madams and then you have the books written about the madams and those are mm. a completely different ballgame, but yeah, Pauline's great. So <laughs> we love her. Um, and, and so there's a lot of information in those that helps us formulate how mm-hmm. things might've been here. Um, and so a lot, a lot of times what's happening is you're going out into the world and you're getting married because that's the only way for you to have a life outside of your family. And so, or, you know, outside of your birth family. And so that's happening. But oftentimes, you know, women's basic needs aren't even being met because we're at this time considered po- uh, like possessions, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, you know, the very basics, like you would probably treat your wife much like you would treat your dog, right? You got to feed it and water it and then sometimes you play with it and then it's fine. Right. But women who are even wanting to escape that, right. (laughs) Women who are even wanting to escape that, you know, you, um, like I just got done reading a story about a woman who, you know, throughout her entire marriage, she was basically supporting the marriage because the guy was like, Oh great. I'm married now. You can take care of me. Mm -hmm. Um, so she's a dressmaker and she's a seamstress and she's the breadwinner, but she's still not making enough money to support them. Um, you've got laundresses, you've got governesses, basically they could be servants. Um, you know, the biggest thing they probably had access to was to be, um, you know, working in like a merchant store or hard factory labor. So in addition to this all being backbreaking, super hard labor, they didn't have eight to five Monday through Friday standards back then, like we do now. Um, so they were working until the job was done. 
and mm. it was hard, hard work. You know, you're talking 12, 14, 16 hours a day, and they still, women are not able to earn enough money to feed themselves and pay their rent and buy themselves shoes, for crying out loud, wow. um, and so things like that. But then college starts to becoming a little bit more available, and you can see, like, I don't know, the early teens maybe where they can start becoming school teachers and bookkeepers and stenographers and things like that. And so a lot of what women can do are in like an internship type way where someone else has the knowledge and they're going to teach you how to do it. So there's not a lot of option out there. And knowing that you have to work that hard for not enough money to feed yourself kind of drives where mm -hmm. people may choose to go. Yeah. And shoot, I thought that um, the nine to five was too too, too laborious for me. Apologize, <laughs> well, I'm very next to the railroad tracks, and a train is coming by right now. So you're good. I think it's just going on. I think it adds a little cool character. <laughs> yeah, the railroad's been here this entire time, so it's a little bit of the history too. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I'd also love to expand. Or I have a curious about um, transiency and the brothel. Like, was there a high rate of transiency at the brothel that you know of? Or were there any longstanding, um, I don't know, is it employees or independent contractor-esque style? <laughs> I'll call it employees. Well, maybe, you know, because you're yeah. you got your uniform allowance. But if you go over, you're in debt to the employee, you know, or to the employer. So, yeah, a, a very high rate of transiency. Um, and through arrest records, we can see that there are some women who have been here for quite a while. Um, and not just here, but at other houses on the road, because there were, you know, six houses that were down here most of the time. Um, so you have our names like um, Hazel Howard and you have um, Hattie Smith. Uh, all of our madams are really kind of in it for the long haul. Some of them start out as, you know, workers in other um, madams' brothels, and then they become madams. Um, and so, yeah, like Jesse Collins, Dora Gaston, and we've, of course, got our Laura Ziegler. Um, we've got Bertha. Uh, Bertha Dean is her the last name she's known as, but Bertha Gale is really what she goes as for most of it. Um, and then we've got... Um, Gosh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I can't recall another. There's another lady who's been here for a long time. Um, but that we see that through arrest records. The census records down here are just in Fort Smith in general. The 1910 census is a mess. Um, mm -hmm. And the 1900 census kind of kind of lets us see what things look like as things are really getting started down here. So That's interesting. Um, it, I thought, I think it was you that made a comment or a note. Um, and then I was like, okay, well, about social security numbers and how someone could just easily change their name, leave town and become someone completely new and create a new life, which is fascinating to me and gets like yeah. my creative juices going. Um, but I, yeah, I was like, I guess social security numbers. I Googled it. It said 1936. And I was like, wow. So all this stuff was you know, prior or a lot of a big portion of it, I guess, was before even that was created. Yeah. So, um, a really great example. Um, <clears throat> so there's lots of these um, Western uh, women who are working, and they are basically going all over the place, right? They're starting Montana, whether it be 
you know, Butte or somewhere else. Butte was a huge community there where they had lots of um, active houses. Um, but then they go down to Dodge City, but then they go over to Tombstone, and then they go over to Bisbee, and then they come back to Dodge City or whatever, right? But they're every single time changing their name, but they leave enough mm. of a trace of themselves that they can be tracked, which is kind of cool. Um, but a good example for us here is actually um, Pearl Star. And, you know, her real name is Rosie Lee Reed. Um, she ends up going by Pearl Younger. She goes by Pearl Star. She goes by Mrs. Sterling Price Harris. She goes by Pearl Andrews. She and then changes her name to actually head out to Bisbee, Arizona. And then she ends up just going by uh, Rose Pearl Reed. Mm. So she's a great example, but, you know, she gets in some trouble here in Fort Smith and she's like, forget it. I'm out of here, you know, and, and she just leaves. So mm-hmm. the court cases are dropped and she doesn't have to worry about it. And her past can't follow her because she's got a different name. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. But I would imagine that as you're trying to get out of this profession, um, like, okay, I'm done. I have enough money. I'm going to go do what it is. I said I was going to do. A, when you're here, you're not typically using your real name, right? And mm-hmm. and then as you leave, you're like, okay, well, I'll, I'll go back to my real name now or I'll create something different because I'm going to go work in this other house and I don't want to be able to be found. I don't want my family to find me, mm-hmm. um, which is the instance in the in the book I just got done reading is she just mm-hmm. didn't want to be found. So every time she left, she changed her name. So wow, um, what book is it that is that from? Yeah. Um. It is actually about, let's see, it's about Lydia Taylor, and it's mm. called Under the Lid, and she, it's a really old book, so we haven't been able to actually find it in print, but she mm. was, um, you know, reformed prostitute through some of the purity movements that were happening, mm. um, just trying to get out of that. She was in it with her sister, you know, but every time she just, she'd leave, and she just, she just didn't want her family to find her. Her mother mm-hmm. was very abusive, and. Her father was very abusive and alcoholics and used her a lot in her adult life. So um, I would imagine that's probably, I I don't want to say all too common, but a fairly common occurrence. Maybe some form of trauma in in some way or not, not across the board, but maybe I would say a high percentage that makes makes sense to me or from what I've gathered with some of my friends and myself. (laughs) <laughs> but oh, I, do you know where like the ladies came from just surrounding area or just kind of like on that tour? Like, I guess, um, I know there was, wasn't there a military base or there is a military base still in Fort Smith. The Air National Guard still utilizes the base. Um, hmm. so it's Fort Chaffee. Okay. And at one point in time was known as Camp Chaffee. Um, so I think the women really probably would have come from all over the place, to be honest. Um, you know, with St. Louis, St. Louis and Fort Smith were really the last jumping off points before people were heading into Indian territory. Um, they were huge gateways to the West for um, that California gold rush time frame, And so it would not have been weird for them to really just kind of follow that, like, um, Big Nose Kate, um, who was actually the um, partner of Doc Holliday, she would follow uh, the cattle movements. And so as they're going through and, you know, they've used up what's happening in Dodge City, well, now she's in Wichita. And so they're they're transient in that way as well. Like, mm. she's actually a part of a traveling 
show or band that includes dancing and alcohol and prostitution. So, um, in essence, I mean, in the early 1800s, she's got a pimp and he's taking his seven women, you know, traveling all over the place. So I think they would have just come from all over. Yeah. That's interesting. That even sparks like my curiosity to like invest in research or um, follow the curiosity or trail there. Um, it seemed, the history seems so rich. Um, so you, you did mention like prostitution being legal and then it was made illegal. And then I believe it was regulated in Fort Smith until later than it was made illegal. Um, okay. I just wanted to expand on that. Um, and then maybe offer, um, did the ladies face legal troubles? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, obviously prostitution's always been around. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Right. Um, so what we have though, in a lot of communities with really prevalent red light districts, um, so this is kind of a nationwide thing that's happening. I'll call it a fad, (laughs) but, um, around, um, 1907. And so in some places earlier, uh, they start to legalize prostitution. Um, and so really what is happening in like places like Storyville is they're not actually making it legal, but what they're saying is, as long as you're down there, we won't bother you. Mm. And so the same kind of thing happens in Fort Smith where, okay, we're going to relegate it to the row is what they call it here. Um, and as long as you're down there, we're not really going to bother you. Um, but you now have to have business licenses. So these are, these are all city ordinances that are happening. You have to have a business license. You have to have two medical exams every month, at least. They have to be free and clear before we're going to issue your business license. And this is all being done through the city of Fort Smith. And so um, they're paying for their license. They're paying for their medical exams. and then. What's crazy is in order to pay that that fee, they're still being arrested to do that because they're not allowed out in town. So they're still having oh, wow. to kind of come down here and, yeah, do all that stuff. So even prior to legalization, they're paying fines every month. They're being arrested every month. And um, so, yeah, and then uh, there was a real big hang up with the moral reform movements that were coming through in 1915, and they tried really hard to shut it down. Um, they were not successful, um, but it resulted in a whole lot of lawsuits against the city and crazy things like that. And then in 1924, they finally make it illegal, you know, or, or ordinance to where they're going to be fined in a different way now. Um, and so that happens and, and that's in October of 1924. And, um, you mentioned an interesting story or case whenever we chatted about, um, Miss Laura coming back to town for... And like our getting yeah. our garden representatives. Yeah, Is I'm not real sure about? what okay. that was about. Um, we actually, uh, my research partner and I actually went over to the um, archive annex for the uh, basically the county court system, which or the circuit court. Um, so back then would have been the police judge court, and so there's this story, and it's all surrounding this 1915 shutdown is that, you know, Laura and Bertha are being charged with this, um, basically running a blind tiger, which is speakeasy speak for, you know, you're doing 
you're serving or you're selling alcohol without the proper licensing. And so, um, and it's just something that the newspapers are calling it. Um, but going through those court records yesterday, Laura's name is not on any of them. So the oh. newspaper actually has it wrong in this instance. And oh. so as we're, and this is just yesterday that we're finding a list, wow. of, but it was Bertha. It was the other madams. They were all being taken up. And essentially what it looks like is they came down, had left up all the houses and said, no, you can't go in. They filed restraining orders and told the madams they couldn't go home. Um, Cause even though there's this other business happening here, it's still their home. Right. So mm -hmm. um, the madams retaliate, they take them to court. They, Bertha ends up suing the city for essentially stepping between her and her place to live. Mm. Um, but they all kind of go through this problem. And then there's this newspaper article that says, you know, that the public is dismayed that um, the resorts on Front Street are being allowed to reopen. So the public clearly has a big issue with all of this stuff. But that's all in 1915. So I don't know that Laura really had much to do with it or anything really at all. And we've oh. been fairly confused about that, too, because Bertha would have already paid the loan off and she would have really had no reason to be here. So. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, actually, when she sold the property to Bertha in 1911, she was already gone. She wasn't even here in Fort Smith. She was in Kansas City, Missouri. So that's interesting. Um, so it's like there, it's the, it's interesting to me that there was such you know backlash from the town members, and um, there weren't there also people that came to support or testify to Bertha's like character. Yep. They sure did. So um, their lawyer obviously vouched for them fairly frequently. Um, but then you have like the doctor, the police chief, the constable, the fire chief, you know, things like that where, you know, if you say, hey, I dare you, you know, prove yourself. I mean, the impression I get from a lot of these madams is that they were no BS kind of women, which ultimately is probably why they're in the position they're in. But um meaning being a madam and, you know, not dependent on anyone else is, you know, they're not going to take a bunch of gruff from a guy mm -hmm. sitting on a pedestal, you know, telling them what they can and can't do. <laughs> so. who, who may or may not be a client. <laughs> I mean, honestly, <laughs> yeah. oh, man, I think some of these stories, I'm like, you know, there's no way that they weren't right. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Intuitively, Maxine that's Maxine Temple feel. Jones. <laughs> yeah. Maxine Temple Jones was a madam who was actually in Hot Springs, Arkansas, which is about mm. three hours south of here. And, um, you know, she talks a lot about the corruption, uh, which is good for us to know because that's, you know, local, semi-local. And uh, yeah. she operated into the 50s. So, you know, she would have known. She would have known, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I'll have to add that to my list. I'm totally again. I want to come. I want to go there, and I want to go come see you guys the next time I'm in Arkansas to visit my mom because she's in the southwest corner, um, and so okay. it's like a little drive. Which is and the Arkansas is so gorgeous too, and I feel like people yeah. like yeah. sometimes underrate Arkansas. Well, maybe it's like a hidden gem, um, but I wanted to touch yeah. on. Um, like a modern, I guess, typical day in the life at the social club. Like what was the etiquette um, and that sort of thing? 
Yeah, so basically the way I kind of imagine this is that, um, you know, they probably would have, you know, gotten up uh, probably sometime around noon or two o'clock and, you know, really just gotten ready for the day and uh, probably eaten breakfast. Um, I do think that in some of these higher end houses like this, they probably had a maid or a cook or something like that, you know, so that they weren't having to, you know, really worry about that, you know, doing that piece of everything. Mm -hmm. um, I think they typically would have spent a lot of time getting ready, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then, I mean, you know, there's a lot of accounts of, you know, women in houses like this having to be very finely dressed, basically evening wear. Mm. Um, and it sounds like in some places they would have expected that from the clients as well. Like, you know, you come mm. in your best dress. Um, now, obviously, there wouldn't have always been um, people that showed up like that. But, you know, probably right around dusk or dark, they probably would have opened the doors. And, mm. you know, um, we've been told that they had a player piano here at Miss Laura's and several of the other houses. So I would imagine this was a pretty rowdy place to be. Um, you know, and then they probably wouldn't have been, I think it probably would have been a pretty consistent revolving door around, um, you know, just kind of schmoozing with the guys, trying to get them to gamble and spend more money on alcohol and maybe even food, um, mm -hmm. before you, you know, got them upstairs and kind of had that whirlwind experience and then kick them out the front door. Um, so I think there's lots of accounts of men, um, in some of these books written by these madams, right, where they talk about there's roughly a 13-minute time frame from the time you're going to the room to the time you leave. And so it's not it's not a long process. Right. Um, but, 13 you know, minutes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, so getting them to spend more money downstairs is super important, right? Yeah. But, yeah. Sometimes in higher end houses, you have the ability to stay the night, and that was always the discretion of the women, it sounds like. Mm. Um, but one of the things that I'll say, <laughs> one of the madams talk about um, that there's smells that never leave the brothel. And so obviously we can imagine what some of them are, but like cigar smoke, whiskey, and body uh. water is really they talk about that smell just sort of like being in the wood and the curtains and furniture and stuff like that and I think oh my gosh I can't even imagine that I couldn't do the cigar <laughs> I had a, yeah. a faulty experience one time where I went to Javier's in Dallas and they have a cigar room and uh, I wanted to look look cool and take a take a puff of the, no one told me not to inhale got sick as ever to this day I cannot stand the smell of cigars so that would have that would have been a, a no go for me. <laughs> um, did they right, meet with the right. madam? Yeah, did they meet with the madam first, or like get clearance? Or um, I know I'm a little privy that they maybe have had to have like a reference letter or something to even visit. Yeah. Yep. So um, <clears throat> you know, oftentimes, I mean, whether it was a calling card or a letter of reference or maybe like a phone call ahead of time from a trusted client to say, hey, you know, Billy's coming, he's fine. Um, but there's some 
accounts of like, so like with uh, Pauline down in Bowling Green, you know, she's real close to those military bases and there's all kinds of trouble coming from them with that Chamberlain Con Act, um, basically making it to where she's not supposed to be operating her brothel, but she's doing it anyways because she was here first kind of thing, right? But when the soldier boys are coming down and they've got enough money to come to her house, she doesn't let them in because they're not supposed to be there. Or mm. like the college boys will come and, well, we know it's novelty and we know you think you want to be here, but trust me, this isn't how you want to do things, boys, you know, and she'll send them home. And so <clears throat> this wouldn't have been different, um, I don't think, you know, that you might have had railway workers. I mean, the railroad tracks are literally five feet from our front door. And so, you know, is it possible somebody would have saved up enough money to come in? Absolutely. Would they have done that? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and so she probably wanted to make sure that people were clean and that they were not going to be a problem. So mm -hmm. um, there's lots of accounts of men coming and there are already three sheets to the wind and they're denied entrance because being drunk is a problem. So. Mm. And yeah, and speaking of like hygiene and cleanliness, did they did they bathe before and after, or was it only the ladies that bathed in between clients? Or um, and then later, and then after that, I'm curious about like early birth control and uh, STI prevention methods. Yeah. So, gosh, not a lot about that. Um. <clears throat> so yeah. Um. It's my understanding that. If, let's say, it was a situation where you have your railway worker coming in, that he would have been required to bathe. Um, because, again, back with the expectations of, you know, you've got to be okay to be in here. But then there's sort of this process that happens, right? And as you're coming into the room with the lady, um, they are, like, they have processes to be able to check for STDs. So, you know, they're kind of going through the motions and they're washing with this astringent solution, you know, all of your genitals and whatever. And um, that like whatever's coming out, if it's slick to the touch, then you don't have gonorrhea or chlamydia. But if it's gritty, then you have something right. So they can at that point, they get to say no. Or, of course, there's things in this time frame like pubic lice, right, which mm -hmm. there's horror stories about from some of these women like, oh, my gosh, no way. But in that instance, you know, all they've got to do is yell or ring this bell or whatever, and the madam comes a running. Um, and so, yeah, the, this washing in, ahead of time is sort of got a dual purpose. I mean, A, they're thinking that the Lysol is going to wash off the, the, the gritty, right? But then um, <laughs> so when everything's all said and done, you know, they're washing themselves up. Um, and, you know, I would imagine the guy leaves, maid probably comes in with clean sheets and, and hot water for them to be able to do all of that. Um, and then they go down and start the process all over again. Um, so, yeah. And, and, you know, they would have probably had chamber pots in their rooms. I know here at Miss Laura's, the house was built with water and electricity and gas. And so um, all these things would have been readily available. Yeah, and for that time um, period, as I feel far like as like to have the to have the electricity and running water. I mean, my mom told me stories of her going to use an outhouse <laughs> at her grandma's. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. This, I mean, genuinely very cosmopolitan. I think um, you know Fort Smith doesn't widely have electric until about 1877. So, or I'm sorry, 18. 
87. And so, you know, for this to have in 1898, um, I mean, it's new construction and she's borrowing the money to do it. So, I mean, I, I she probably would have wanted the best of the best. I mean, there's lots of stories about, you know, one of the madams, I think, in New Orleans that maybe it was Mahogany Hall or Arlington Hall, um, where they spent $2,000 just to furnish one room. So, wow. Um, the fact that she spent $3,000 just to build the house. Like is, that was then. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as prevention is concerned for STDs, really, I don't, I don't think there was really anything to do. You know, um, you're just sort of at the mercy of nature, honestly, um, or your, your biometrics basically, mm -hmm. but, um, pregnancy prevention though, um, you know, there's, uh, fish bladders or even like animal intestine, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. Um, you know, there's <clears throat> stories of them using like linen with, um, like hardened honey or um, peels of sorts, but like, you know, these really primitive methods of like diaphragms or um, <laughs> there's, you know, being infected with syphilis there. I was actually just reading a couple of days ago about some um, like douching with mercury. I can, I cannot oh, wow. even imagine that process, but um so, you know, it, uh, there's a lot of poison that's happening during this time uh, to try to, I'll say, cure unwanted pregnancy. Um, there's just, gosh, there's really not a lot available. Um, I know that I had read in um, some of the women's studies books that we had read um, w talking about how women were saying, you know, well, at least if I can get the clap just one good time, then at least I won't have to worry about getting pregnant, you know, which I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't imagine like sitting around being like, please, please. <laughs> yeah. So, and you know, the treatments for some of this stuff are just horrific, you know, um, you've got like, I'm, man, I mean, syphilis was really the big thing, right? But mm -hmm. you've got essentially antibiotics aren't widely available until after like around 1943, like they start treating people around 1941, but um, widely available in 43. So, uh, you know, early on, you've got all these crazy mercury treatments, which are just barbaric. I think, you know, they're mixing them with like grease, uh, mercury with grease so that they can do topical application to, um, you know, syphilis causes like, sores and stuff and so mm -hmm. um you have some of that and then you have you have this um oh gosh what's it called bismuth right which is another metal and they start bathing in it um thinking that that's the thing so they're they're thinking initially if you can make um make them sweat and make them salivate then it's going to get rid of all this stuff and um then so you have the bismuth bass at that point and then you have um penicillin not coming in, like I said, until about 1943, but you have salversan and neosalversan, which are mercury um, mixed with arsenic. And so that compound has wow. changed slightly. And, you know, so we're just poisoning ourselves all over the place with all of that stuff. And, and it's awful. Um, and that's like the big one, but I've noticed or seen, I guess, really where 
bladder irrigation is a common treatment for some things and could be early stages of um, syphilis. It could be gonorrhea, um, chlamydia, things like that, that they feel like they can just wash this out or even yeast infections, right? That's mm -hmm. got to be horrible. But mm. um, so there's that. And, and um, all of that stuff is happening in like some of the doctor's journals we've been able to, to mm. look at. And so... Sometimes we're looking at things one time and then you got to go back because you figure something else out and you're like, okay, well, what was going on there? You know, what yeah, is all of this? That's, that's interesting. Like to have the access to the doctor's journals, that's really fascinating. Is there anything else from there that stands out to you to share? Yeah. I mean, you know, basically I think we ended up counting uh, nine women who were diagnosed with syphilis, um, you know, the bladder irrigation, like I said, I've got to go back and actually see, okay, well, the women were being treated, but this doctor was taking care of the whole community. Mm -hmm. And so who in the community is being treated? Oh. Um, because <laughs> that's going to kind of provide a roadmap a little bit, right? So journals are from like, 1896 all the way to 1913. So it's going to span, you know, Laura and Bertha's time. But that's really cool because these these women, I'll say four houses um, for sure. You've got Mon McGrath, Dixie St. Clair, um, Laura, and then Pearl, who are clearly they see the value in medical care prior to it being legalized because the doctors down here, what seems like every day or at least once a week, um, and he's caring for these ladies, whether it be fainting or, you know, they're just ill and they're being uh, treated for syphilis or whatever this bladder irrigation is. Um, and so he's down here and he's doing all that stuff, but they clearly see the value in this medical care prior to legalization. So that makes me think they've done all this before. Mm. Um, so maybe Laura in her, her transiency has maybe mm. come you know, maybe she came down from St. Louis or something. I don't know, but you know, she, she clearly, she knew that it was valuable, which is mm -hmm. kind of cool. That is cool. Um, yeah, there's, I don't know why there's such an air of mystery surrounding her. Um, I know, I, man, I'm telling you. I, it, are there any known stories of the ladies who worked there or did they primarily want to keep their, um, identity anonymous, um, or escape family situations, whatever it may be. That I'm aware of, there's really no stories from the women here. You know, I think that what I'm seeing is that the stories that we're able to read are the stories that are written by madams. Mm. And I think, and you know, maybe as you're kind of going through some of the literature too, you'll see that it's almost like they're sort of on, they're on their last dollar and they're thinking that the publication of this memoir is going to get them some more fast cash, which, you know, we know now publication doesn't work that way, right? It's a slow Correct. Process. Correct. Um, but, you know, they get it out there. But again, going back to, you know, a lot of women in this profession were illiterate. And so writing their stories down wasn't really something they were able to do. Mm. Um, and so I, I think really the only stories we're able to see really are that of the madams. But mm -hmm. one of my favorite stories, I think, actually um, comes from Pauline. And, you know, she talks about 
this one girl coming in, like she'd been going to school to be a teacher and she just didn't have enough money to pay for the last term of, you know, school. And so she comes and she works for her for the summer and then she's gone. She never hears from her again. She becomes a teacher. She gets married. She has children. Um, and that's like on the, you know, what I'll call the Cinderella side of things, you know? Um, I think that's a common one. And there's, for, for you know, another, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, but then you've got also these stories, like there's a book called Nell Kimball and, you know, she's talking about escaping her childhood where, you know, I'm exaggerating slightly, but like her mom has 20 kids and, you know, they're all being utilized as labor on the farm mm. and she's tired of helping her mom raise kids and she doesn't want to be like her mom and she doesn't want to get married and have all of this, you know, so she's escaping that part of it. And her aunt was a prostitute and she had died, you know, and they told her, you know, if you ever make it to St. Louis, go to this place. And so she ends up there. And, and so her book talks a lot about, you know, what it's like to get started, um, you know, that you have to first work and then, you know, then you can start your house and things like that. And, um, you know, she lies about her age going in. And so mm. she really, really wants to do this thing, but she's starving to death and she doesn't have anywhere else to go. And so, um, but then in this under the lid or, you know, from, from under the lid that I'm reading, you know, she's escaping extremely abusive parents, um, a, a menagerie of abusive, you know, marriages and things like that. And she's just trying to feed herself. So um, yeah. lots of crazy stories, but. I think that that's kind of like a core component. If I would say, I mean, like, between the ladies then, now, humans across the board, like maybe people want a better life or, you know, are seeking something better than they came from or wanting to enhance it in some way if you didn't come from a lot of means. Um, and that can be, you know, whether it's financial or relationships or what may have it. But um, you spoke about, you know, lying about her age. Is it, um, that makes me, ponder like what was the common age or do you know like the common or the average age I guess of the of the ladies at Miss Laura's Miss Laura's um I'm gonna just say we probably fell into like that average of everybody else you know and I think honestly um the average age was probably 18 but that also insinuates that you know there's women mm -hmm. as young as 13 to 14 that are working in this um environment but you know, also considering that people were in, in this time frame, um, you know, leaving home to get married and start a family at 12. Mm -hmm. So life's a little harder then. And, um, you know, it's not until, I don't know, maybe the late seventies, mid seventies that we have this delineation of adolescence. So, mm -hmm. you know, back then you're, you're either a child or you're an adult. There's not an in-between. And, mm -hmm. you know, for women, once you start your monthly cycle, you're an adult. And so no matter what that looks like, you know, um, mm -hmm. so there's, That's you read a lot of stories historically about women hiding that from people because they don't, they know they're not ready. They know that that's not something they can do. Mm -hmm. that's an interesting um or that's a good distinction and clarification too like that there wasn't like this big adolescent time period and i think even about um you know my mom she got married for the first time at 15 and had her uh first child at 17 so i'm like that's not that far away <laughs> um yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um what are some of the challenges of researching the history Oh, gosh. I mean, the biggest thing really is time, right? Mm. We have 
regular <laughs> jobs. So yeah. this is my job. Yeah. Um, but I have sort of a two pronged um, position. So I, I'm here and I manage Miss Laura's um, and I manage the research and the curation of all of this stuff here. But I also am office manager for the Convention Visitor Bureau. So mm-hmm. we have this whole other side of things where we, you know, our job is to bring people enforcement. And so it's appropriate that we have the visitor center. Um, and so we have this whole other side of the house. Um, but also, uh, my research partner has a full-time job as well. So it's trying to find those little nooks and crannies where we can get information and it takes so long. Um, but also to breaking down the barrier of, um, <laughs> the distrust, which is mm-hmm. just crazy to me. Um, I'm not from Fort Smith. I have absolutely no ties to this community at all. And to me, it's just about telling the truth. And mm-hmm. there's so much that gets buried, I think, when it comes to things like this, that mm-hmm. um, <laughs> like, well, what are you going to tell people? Well, listen, if I found a client list, I'm not going to publish it online, you know, but <laughs> we can say things like influential members of the community. We don't have mm-hmm. to say names, right? I'm not going to like out somebody. Yeah, all <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm gonna track you down. It's okay. Um, but you know, there have been times when we've gone in, like the tax records. I'll say, for instance, we went to the county clerk, and you know, we're flipping through the book, and it's like, okay, okay, it should be on the next page, and then the next page is missing. Oh, and like for what? Your tax records. Like, why would that be missing? Um. So that's kind of weird. and That is weird. Um, it's like missing yeah. puzzle pieces. And finding this stuff in the newspapers. Yes, yeah. But then sometimes the puzzle pieces come together and you're like, oh my gosh, that's why I have that because it goes there and this is what's going on there. Oh, look, there's a newspaper article. This is great. We prove everything now. <laughs> so I love some aha cool. moments. <laughs> yeah. Are they connecting or We've had a few here recently. It's been really nice. That's awesome. Um. Yeah. Do you guys have any like upcoming events that you want to share or like, or anything just about Miss Laura's, the visitor center or, um, that you just want to share with listeners? Yeah. So, um, our mission has changed significantly over the last year and, um, I've only been here for a year and some change. I started in November of 22. Um, and so we are now, um, obviously, you know, delving deep into the history and kind of getting away from the vaudeville theatrics and first person interpretation and, you know, doing things like that. And so our mission now we're trying to focus on, you know, just a level of respect paid towards the women who worked here, um, or just have worked in general in this, you know, Mm -hmm. profession, um, to educate people about the lack of rights during this time frame. Um, to educate them on what experiences might have been like and really, um, really taking that educational approach of, you know, this is sort of tongue in cheek anyways, and we can have fun while they're here, but also to um, reminding them that, you know, these women were, they were people first. Mm-hmm. And so we, we were going to give them that respect. Um, they had a very human experience and, um, you know, we're still researching. So the the story is going to continue to morph. The more we learn, the more we can share. Um, and I'll just say, you know, a lot of it's buried. A lot of it's not been talked about because it's not the fun and floofy stuff, you know, but mm-hmm. um, we're working on doing more talks 
Um, we're working on doing more presentations. We're going to try to sort of figure out how to do little events. Um, we always have fall festival going on. Um, this year it'll be in October. And so oh, cool. um, we share um, part of the story and we do an amended tour because it's a lot shorter time frame. We work with all the other historic sites when we do things like that. Um, and I just recently actually met with and we are going to try to figure out a good way to work with a project here. Um, it's in Van Buren, which is our uh, sister community here, but it's called the Monarch 61 Project, and um, they do, they have tons and tons of resources around, like, um, women's trauma, whether it be, mm. like, PTSD, sex trafficking, whatever the case might be, um, but we're going to try to figure out a good way to work with them um, probably next January during Human Trafficking Month. Um, we're going to try to get some signs from them for our restroom, you know, just things that have really not mm -hmm. been thought about because it's so out of the box. Um, but try to figure out how to implement talks with them to where they can come mm -hmm. and address this, um, I don't know, marginalized community, I guess, really, you know, but mm -hmm. to try to get more of that awareness out there, have them training our staff um, on, you know, more appropriate ways to, to discuss some things. And so um, eventually we're going to be able to deliver a history of the entire row, um, which will be great because right now we focus on Miss Laura's, of course, but um, there was a whole community here. And so we wanted to be able to talk about that too. Um, you know, we're going to be changing in this upcoming year, becoming an official museum. So we are um, changing to the Miss Laura's Brothel Museum. And so we'll kind of take our place in the, in the sea Love of that. that. <laughs> um, uh, a couple yeah, things. So we'll have uh, what do you, when do you know, or do you have a slate or, for opening that or, or is it kind of like a work in progress or TBD type of thing or? Yeah. So we, um, the CBB is going to have to get moved out of the building first, um, which there's five offices here. So that'll mean, you know, five new spaces to be reimagined, um, which is going to be great. Um, one of those spaces is actually going to have to have some community involvement and, you know, maybe from folks like yourself where we bring it to the current, um, when they call it closing the loop. Right. And we, we don't have a loop to close because it's still happening. You know, this isn't mm -hmm. a history that's done. Um, and so kind of bringing that into the current, um, we hope to work with Monarch 61 as it pertains to that too. Um, you know, to kind of get that going. So yeah, once all of that stuff's out, I'm, I'm thinking we should be done and, um, be able to have a ribbon cutting sometime in 2025. So this, this just takes time. Yeah, it yeah. takes time, but that's exciting. And there are any links that you want to share about Monarch 61, send my way. Cause I think there's a big um, thing. I think it's often a confusion too, when um, speaking on sex trafficking, whenever someone's forced into doing something and they do it out of their own volition um, or like making the choice yes. themselves. Um, but I think it's powerful to make a partnership and increase awareness about sex trafficking. Cause I know I've been in an airport before yes. and saw like a scenario. It's like, that just made my head tilt. I'm like, mm, I don't know what, what's going on there. Um, yeah. And Something's so I was like, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm like, just encourage listeners to pay attention to surroundings. And, um, I know they do have some, at least in the Austin airport on, in their bathrooms, the posters and stuff like that. Yes. Um, and I'd love to yeah, collaborate some in some way. Yeah. They just did some stuff over in Van Buren for their restrooms in their downtown, um, area. And so, um, I live in Van Buren and so I've seen oh, cool. some of those things. I'm like, oh my gosh, I wonder who, I bet you Monarch 61 did these. So um, <laughs> yeah. they do a lot in the community. They do like 
art therapy and, you know, discussions mm. in their, their facility because we don't have a women's shelter. Mm. So they're really just kind of trying to pick up with some resources. They do partnerships in the community and stuff. So it kind of keeps them going. But, you know, I will say too, like, um, a lot of the madams from this time frame, because so they, they, they called it really white slavery is what they were calling it back then. But, um, you know, this trafficking isn't new. It's always been going on. Um, you know, I think right now there's this um, surge of, and just in recent history of kidnapping women from the United States and taking them to other countries. Wow. And back then they were taking women from other countries and bringing them here because they couldn't speak English. And so mm-hmm. you start to see the Mann Act develop <clears throat> with all these laws and rules and regulations around women immigrating into this country because they were sold on the fact that if you were coming here and you were a woman, it was definitely for prostitution. And so um, they don't view men as being the problem. They view, they view women as being the problem. And so things don't get flipped on their head correctly until a little bit later. But these madams are keenly aware that there is white slavery happening. Um, They are also keenly aware that some of these women have pimps, which is not a new concept. Um, so you Pits have while working at a brothel or yes. Yeah. Oh. So they would have their madam that they're paying all of, you know, whatever their mm-hmm. rent and their board and their clothing and stuff, um, meals. And then you've got your pimp who's taking the rest of your money and you're still living here with nothing. Wow. And so, um, there seemed to be like a, you know, do you have a pimp? Are you a lesbian? Are you a drug addict? Like are you an alcoholic, you know? And so even for women to come into establishments like this, it seems like for the most part, women just sort of showed up. Um, and a lot of the books we've read, they swear that they never, you know, like paid for a person to come and work here, like in a white sleeve sense, you know? Um, but there, there are all also instances of them like calling up to Chicago and being like, Hey, can you send Jenny down here? You know, she was a great money earner and Mm -hmm. I just need her for a month or two or whatever and she can go back. But, you know, so in that sense, I think, gosh, what if they were traded around like, you know, baseball players or football Mm -hmm. players, you know, what was there? What if there was that network? Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know the answer to that, but yeah, um, I was curious if some of the transiency, Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, I was curious earlier if some of the transiency was due to, like, you know, and, uh, like making, if you're new, you, you may ha- get, um, attract more, uh, like clients or if you're like a, as a friend, if it's, yeah. if you've been there before, um, maybe, um, uh, as awful as it sounds like old news to people that are frequenting the yeah. brothel. But if you have like a new identity, it makes you fresh again and, and all that sort of stuff too. Or bringing in outside talent yeah. from out of town. Cause I know that it's a common thing even to this day for like escorts to travel or tour or, or that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Some of that for sure. Um, you have like, you know, maybe, you know, Jenny over here, she's been here for a while and people really like her. She's, um, beautiful and she does all the things that everybody ever wants her to do you know but then you have Margot over here who's like me i don't really want to work and so they mm-hmm. send her off to go be somewhere else or maybe they just mm-hmm. kick her out or whatever you know but wow. maybe they have um big a big housing district like in new orleans you know storyville closed down in 1917 so there would have been a huge 
um, population of women who just all of a sudden now didn't have anywhere to be. And so I can only assume that they came to bigger cities like, you know, Fort Smith and Little Rock and St. Louis and Chicago and things like that. And so mm-hmm. um, they they would have tried to follow the breadcrumbs, as it were, I think, you know, yeah. they, they knew Deadwood was a big thing, you know, whenever that started coming, coming up. So. I'm curious, was, was that were some of those go. questions like part of a screening process? Or you mentioned the lesbian one. I'm like, did they not want a lesbian to work at a brothel? I mean, because I know I had a roommate in college that was, I was le- lesbian, but was a stripper um, or dancer, yeah. whatever terminology. And she, but she, she loved it because she, she was like, I'm, I'm going to use these men or, you know, get their money and I don't have to sleep with them and <laughs> don't have any interest yeah. whatsoever. Well, you know- yeah, exactly. Like I'm so much more easily disconnected to this process, right? Because you're not interested in what's happening. You know, you're there, mm-hmm. you're doing your job. Like, you know, there's emotional disconnection, which mm-hmm. obviously we know now is horridly unhealthy. And like disassociation. You know, they're, they're, they're in disconnection mode. They're just, yeah, they're doing what they need to do to earn their money. And, and that's what they're there for. But I know one of the madam's com- comments pretty consistently across the board that it seems to take money away in some way like because they're not interested they show that they're not interested and so the men are picking up on the thing and they don't want to deal with them but then also they're more interested in um like sexual contact with the the other women that work there versus actually working and so um, you know that's another thing yeah like they're like oh whatever i'm just you know this is my place just sneaking over into <laughs> a whatever, you know. room <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, I, and I don't know how badly that would have affected things, honestly. Like, I don't know. Some of these women really did run away and marry the guys that mm-hmm. came here. You know, that really did happen. Um, mm. I can imagine it didn't last for very long. You know, um, you're enamored because they're here, and it's this like I don't want to call it magical experience because it probably was not that at all, but you know, it's the only um, connection that you've got because you're coming to this brothel and you know, you start to love this person and then you get them out of here and you marry them and you know, whatever. And and that's fine. But like in your mind, you can never let the past go, which Mm -hmm. I mean, people aren't different now than they were then, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, two part of that is in some of these, higher end places they would have one particular girl that would deal with all of the weird things you know where the chamber pot in the room wasn't just for going to the bathroom in or whatever you know that um there seems to be this <laughs> it's, it's like some of the stuff is super gross like you'll see pauline she really talks a lot about okay. like the guy's weird behavior awesome. <laughs> this reminds me of this um, story with um a friend an older she's actually in my book Lori. Um, but, uh, and she, she's gone now, but she has a, she was very open and honest about everything, but she used to have this funny, uh, terminology called kink quotient. It sounds like some people, some people's clients had a higher kink quotient, <laughs> kink quotient than, yes. uh, than yes. others. Absolutely. <laughs> oh. oh my gosh. I can't even remember which book it was in at this point, but like. There was some guy who was really into cutting. And so like she talks about how she'd go in there and it looked like a murder scene or whatever. And they finally had to like tell the guy he had to stop coming because like 
I know I can't even imagine, but you know, just to that level, like that stuff's still happening then. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not, it's not new. Like all this stuff is not new. Human behavior has yeah. not evolved. You know, really. I think we're the I'm same kidding. people. We just, I don't know. Yeah. And I think that, um, or, or like how much have we changed or like what, what are the true, what elements like ring true throughout de- decades? Well, desire for sex was one. Otherwise we wouldn't be here. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think that, right? you know, at least there's some element for me, I'll speak for myself that there's some, like when something is taboo or, um, you know, kind of like, Oh, I'm not supposed to do that. Or uh, there's an attraction there too. Um, and so like, may, and maybe that makes me have a higher kink quotient than other people. I don't know. I'll have to reflect on that later, but, <laughs> but I just think that, you know, if someone's drawn to, um, someone at the brothel marries them, but when they get, take them out of the brothel, the dynamic completely shifts. Um, and now you're wanting someone that, um, a lady of the evening to be this, um, you know, what stay at home mom, wife, kept woman. Um, I don't know. And I can only imagine the arguments that could spring if you still want to visit the, the <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. Right. And I mean, this is a lifestyle too, where, mm-hmm. you know, maybe at first you came in and you were like, Oh my gosh, I just want to be quiet and stay in my room and I'll do what I need to do to earn my money and do the thing. But then at some point in time, you put all that stuff behind you and um, I don't know. And I'm speculating, like I'm not saying this Mm -hmm. is happening, but like, you know, maybe it starts to become fun and you get used to, you know, kind of like the, I'll say like party girl lifestyle, right? Like you go Mm -hmm. to the club and you're drinking and you're doing drugs and you're like all the things, right? And, and that's fun. Like it's something you enjoy or maybe you're self-medicating out of, you know, trauma, traumatic experiences, Mm -hmm. but um, there are people in this life that are like, yeah, I'm going to go to the bar and I'm going to drink and I'm going to go home and I'm going to sleep with five dudes and whatever. I'm not getting paid for it. I'm going to do it because I like it. Well, those people still existed back then. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is sort of a party girl lifestyle, only you're getting paid to do those things now. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying that's a good thing. Um, but yeah. there, there is that population of women who discovered, oh, my God, I can earn an annual income <laughs> in a month. I mean, I will just, like you said, speak for myself in saying that if I had to worry about earning $9 a week to feed myself, busting my butt working at a factory, worried about all kinds of, you know, no laws or things to protect me or anything like that. And I knew that I could come to a house like this and have food, a roof over my head and um, free medical care. Mm-hmm. I mean, I say free, they had to pay for it, but you know, um, they're still paying the madam, but to you have all of these routine things that out on your own, you're starving to death. And mm-hmm. I personally would have made this decision. Oh, oh I, yes, absolutely. Um, me too. <laughs> um, but then I also think, um, I lost my train of thought for a second. Yeah. I guess I was thinking too about like what, um, opportunities are there at that time period, um, and the amount of money that could be earned. And I know, um, some people to this day, some people that I've had conversations with have even said, um, that they're, yeah, like I would do a lot of that stuff for free. Like why not uh, have someone that is romantically interested in me so help support me or my dream or my vision for the future. And when I dial it back on like a basic necessity level, like especially then without as much opportunities when you could go to a home um, or a house and and work 
and have all those basic needs met. Because at the, I think of like the hierarchy of needs and like until you're getting those needs met, you're not worrying about like self-actualization and contribution or all those things. So um, I mean, it's like, yeah, those those hunger, the stomach, stomach growls are real. And um, yeah, um, not to mention if you couple that with like abuse and um, or wanting a different life from a farm and all that stuff. Um, it's 11, 11 on, in my time zone, which I think is really interesting. So I'm going to take, this is an awesome, like interesting conversation. I feel like it could go, could go on for hours whenever the, you know, um, and I'm totally open to having you come back to, um, as things evolve or develop that you want to share or just send me the information or collaborate and like, I'll update show notes or like we can, I can put something out there. Um, cause I love what y'all are doing. Uh, is there any like social Thank links you, or yeah. any things you can point to? Um, also want to share any like tour opportunities for people. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I love your idea of, you know, hopefully someday being able to offer like a virtual tour, um, you know, and, and obviously I think that would probably require appointments and things like that. So we've got mm-hmm. to kind of try to think through that for a few yeah. Um, but I will say, um, you know, our doors are open, uh, 10 to 10 AM to 4 PM Monday through Saturday. Um, and so you can come in and do a currently free guided tour. Um, and then, you know, we're on Facebook and we're on Instagram. Um, we don't have a huge presence there. We don't have a website. Um, that's all to come. Um, because we've been under the CBB for so long, we've always just kind of operated things that way. Um, I will say that as you're out and you're researching things and you're doing things on the internet, you're going to find things, um, vastly different than from what I'm talking about today. And it's because, they didn't have then what we have now, which is the research and the truth. Mm-hmm. And so, um, mm. as you're, as you're digging through things like that, just keep that in mind. Um, because there is a lot out there. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. and you know, I keep meaning to say too, like, um, one of the other biggest things that we have to dispel is being the first or the only brothel on the national register and, and we're not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do love to tell people that is, um, the very first, um, brothel on the national register was actually called the Dumas brothel and it's in Butte, Montana, and it is also a museum. So, mm-hmm. you know, they get up there to get that chance, get a chance to go up there. That's there too. Um, so, um, in 2025, I'll say when we are finally a completely reimagined space in the full blown museum without offices, um, we'll start charging $5 a person. So, um, and again, the, the history is there to be uncovered and the tour will continue to change until we have that all under wraps. So it's so cool. Cause y'all, y'all really do have some incredible, like, um, items and cases and like, um, the license on the bed stands out to me. And, um, I really think it would be even enhanced and like more to see it in person and to have that come to life. So I definitely recommend if you're in the area, checking it out, I'm going the next time I'm in Arkansas. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been really cool. And I really love sharing this stuff.